Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Good evening, this is Bill Evans. Welcome to the War Room. I'm tonight, and I'm in uh, Long Beach, California, and I've got on the other end of the phone Joseph Foreman in, um, on, from Montreat, North Carolina, Black Mountain, North Carolina. Uh, Joseph um, is a former national director of Operation Rescue and co-founder with Matt Trahalla of Missionaries to the Preborn. Jo- uh, Joseph uh, is a third-generation Ordained Presbyterian minister, he went to uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary and Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and he uh, married uh, the president's daughter, uh, the former Ann Clowney. And so, Joseph, welcome to the War Room. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, this is a little different than we've done it, but we're going to make it work. And uh, okay, we just adapt, adjust, and improvise. Um, Joseph, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here, several reasons, we've, we've, you know, I, I won't say we're good friends, but I feel like we've become sort of close friends in the short time I've known you and how I originally even found out about you was just an offhanded comment that Bojadar Marinoff had made. So before we really get into, um, what I really want to talk to you about, I guess we owe you a, a debt of gratitude for, uh, getting Bo Bojan Armenov over here to the United States. You want to tell us real briefly, just as a, as a introduction, how how that happened? Sure. Um, sometime around the turn of the century, the recent one, uh, I was online and uh, in different chat rooms, reform chat rooms, Y two K chat rooms, those sorts of things, and uh, homeschool stuff and because we have eight children, we were homeschooling them. And um, there's this guy who, you know, when you're on those things, you start running into the same people in different contexts again and again. And he, he and I generally were more or less on the same side of of the question, uh, whatever question was being hotly debated. And um, so after six months, a year, or whatever, I just, you know, we got to emailing or texting or something. And um, we, so I just asked him uh, where he was from. And I think he said, where do you think I'm from? And I said, well, your English just written sounds like, um, I mean, I've never heard his voice. Sounds like Southern California, kind of a laid back, you know, easy command. And uh, he, he said, well, I've, I've never been to California. I said, well, where are you from? He says, Bulgaria. And I said, right, but I mean, in America, where are you from? He says, I'm not, I've never been to America. Um, and so at this point, I don't know how many times we went back and forth, but I finally realized the guy's an alien. You know, he just, he's, he's from somewhere else. Um, <laughs> so we got to talking and, and he started sharing his, uh, his whole vision to uh, uh, translate, not just his vision, what he was doing actually to translate uh Reconstructionist and Reformed works into Bulgarian, and um, so somehow it got around to why don't you come on over here, and uh, if you can make it over here, I can introduce you to everybody I know. And so he he came over, and I was part of a church at that time that had a number of different people who were fairly well connected around the country, um, like Phil Lancaster, and uh, so. He and I got in the car for about two weeks, and we just drove all over the country, and I introduced him to everybody I knew and a couple of people I didn't know. And uh, so I introduced uh, Bojadar to everybody I knew around the country, and particularly to Susan and Jeff Peters um, in uh, Virginia, who uh, became his contact person and sent out the Bulgarian Reformation newsletter uh, on a monthly basis, which I've been getting ever since. After going around the country, um, I and my family moved down to North Carolina to take care of my parents who were in 
we were getting older. And uh, more or less from that point for the next 15 years, uh, just dropped out of touch with everybody and, and uh, taught at Montreal College for a while. And then uh, as the kids were getting old enough, I really wanted to see my wife, who was extremely gifted uh, when it comes to uh, uh, cooking, uh, start a uh, catering business, and she did. And, and um, so she and I have been doing that for the last 10 or 15 years now. Okay. Tell, tell us, if you will, uh, um, how what you were doing and how you got involved in um, op- what we know today as Operation Rescue. Um, in, in some respects, it goes back uh, long before I was born. My uh, uh, my father was a missionary in China and was over there for one year. He he went over during the Civil War, and the communists, as you know, won the Civil War um, and took over Kuantan, where he was being uh, where he was a missionary, and he was held prisoner for a number of years there by the Chinese communists, and uh, they they made sure that if he saw, um, I don't know how many hundreds of people executed uh, as they attempted to brainwash him, and, and instead he led his brainwashers to Christ, well, two of them anyway. Um, and uh, when he came back, I was born. They then went to Korea with my mother still pregnant, no six months after the armistice was signed in Lin Jun, and were missionaries there for 10 years. So by the time I was 10 years old, learning the, you know, the family history and the lore, <laughs> there was really only one thing I thought of as Christianity, and that is you go anywhere and do anything for Jesus. Um, and if you, if you die something other than a martyr's death, you're kind of unlucky. Uh, and that was just what I understood Christianity to be. You just, you know, whatever your theology is, and my, my theology is was, was always basically reformed. Um, when I was 12, I, uh, my main project, I realized that none of my friends had any idea what reformed theology was, even though we were in a Presbyterian church. And um, so I attempted to put the Westminster Confession of Faith into modern English so, so you know, maybe they could see what the theology was. They were not impressed. Um, but that's what I spent a good chunk of my free time doing, which is trying to make the Westminster Confession of Faith in, in modern English. Um, and uh, read a lot of Jonathan Edwards. That was about the extent of my Reformed education. That you can think any thoughts you want to think. That's fine. Thoughts have a way of flowing together and working and being really cool. But if you can't put them into practice, they don't work that much. And uh, and also the question is, can you do it? Not, not can you think it? And um, so... This kind of goes counter to the modern stuff of just, you know, if you can believe, you know, if you can think it, you can be it. Their whole thing was, you can, anybody who has a creative mind can think almost anything. The question is, what what can you do? And so um, I looked around and, and thought, you know, after four years of seminary and four years of college, I need to go do something. So I uh, started a janitorial service. And for the next three or four years, I did that. And it was right after I got to be uh, pretty successful at that. We um, that Anne got me out picketing an abortion, well, a hospital that was doing abortions. It was about six blocks from where we lived in, in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And uh, at that point, uh, I I didn't want to have anything to do with it because I kind of felt like if I really stop and think about it, if it really is killing a human being, then. Uh, then you got to do something more than just think about it. I mean, you got to do something about that. And, and I just, I can remember very distinctly in 1973, my dad saying, well, America has changed. And I said, how? And he said, we're, we're killing babies legally now. And he said, it's just, it's never going to be the same after that. I, I don't know if you can root this out of a culture or not. And um, that just always stuck in my mind. And that's really the last thing I really thought about abortion. Um, I remember there was a class one time at Gordon where I was doing a special presentation on uh, how handicapped children were dealt with throughout history, and I said uh, that 
you know, mention the fact that it would leave them out for exposure. And I said, at least that's that's more, uh, and, and I hadn't given abortion a thought. This was just something shocking. And I said, you know, that that's, uh, uh, at least you give a kid a chance to live that way. Today, what we do is we, we don't even let them be born. We just rip them to shreds in the womb. And I just, I had no idea what abortion was. I was just talking off the top of my head. And everybody in the class gasped. And uh, the, the teacher immediately emptied the classroom and practically flunked me on the spot for being so uh, so offensive. And I was I was totally stunned. It was like, what? I mean, what? I, I didn't use any bad language. I didn't, you know. <clears throat> but he was just, uh, he was really upset with me for for saying that it would, you know, uh, I don't know, I think I compared it to something like smashing a, a baby with, with bricks or something. And uh, it, it was something startling. And, and so those are, that's really the only thought I'd really put into it. But once you got me out picketing and once we started looking at the pictures and the whole family was out picketing, um, and, and, and the kids were gung-ho, they thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, when we got, um, one day it was raining and my, my oldest daughter didn't want to go. And I said, well, well, you know, when you pick it in the rain, that you know really shows some commitment and shows that you really believe what you're doing. And she said, Dad, if, if we believe that, it's, that, that they're murdering children, like I mean, you've shown us the pictures and everything, um, why are we just holding these stupid signs? And uh, you know, that, I got to thinking, and at that point, Philadelphia is where people were rescuing, and so the, it, was, it was actually a Mormon couple that was sort of heading up the picket. Uh, and... Uh, they said, you know, they sort of just started explaining rescue to me. And, and I was like, that yeah, makes a lot of sense. You block the door. You don't let the, the, the killer get to the victim. This, this really makes sense. And um, so uh, I went down for one of their pickets. There wasn't a planned rescue, but the police came. The abortionist showed up. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves there at the door blocking it. And I spent my first night in jail. And that was really one of the more exhilarating things I've ever done. It was like, this is really cool. Um, we actually kept the babies, I don't know how many babies, from being killed that day because by the time the police cleared everybody away, it was about 6 o'clock at night and everything was done and the abortionists had gone home. And um, You know, I, I, I was just, it was all just sort of spontaneous. <clears throat> and um, uh, at that point, uh, was when I just started getting involved with, with the leadership down there for both rescue and uh, we got the hospital, by the way, to quit killing children. And then we went and worked on the next one and got it to quit killing children. So uh, Norristown became a, a, a child-killing-free zone. None of the hospitals would do it. There wasn't an abortion clinic around there. There's one across the river. but um, So that's, that's pretty much how I got my start, just, just getting into the whole... Oh, there's also one other thing, which is, um, I don't know if anybody else experiences this, but I suspect they do, but I've never heard anybody else say it. And that is, if you're an intelligent person, if you're articulate and you're, and you're intelligent, and I was fairly articulate, I was fairly intelligent, you can't help but believe that, this, that there's something wrong with pro-lifers. Because you look at the pictures of the dead babies, and just how can you fail to convince somebody that this is wrong. I mean, what, what is it? This is, this has got to be the easiest sales job there ever was. See these dead babies. That that's bad. Why don't we try to stop it? That would be good. So let's stop it. Uh, I mean, how easy could it get? So I just assumed that the pro-life movement was made up of idiots and rubes and pe people who had no idea what they were doing and, and uh, couldn't really be that serious about it. And I figured they just needed me. You know, I mean, I would, come in, we'd sell the country on this, and it'd be done. And, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I can still just remember that feeling. I know it sounds really arrogant, it sounds really, but I mean, just coming in completely from the outside, how on earth could you fail to win an argument when you have these dead babies right on hand? I mean, what, what is there? Oh, I didn't mention one other thing. Uh, all around this, this, eh, this, this, this happened a little bit later. Um, so I won't tell that story yet. But um, just how could you fail to communicate this? How could you fail to convince somebody of this? And, and of course, the next, well, the next 25 years after that, I've, 
I now have some pretty clear ideas on how, how difficult it is. Um, and it's not difficult because of the content. It's difficult because of, <clears throat> well, it just can't be true. It just, just for somebody to admit that it's the murder of children um, and that they're complicit, and God forbid, I mean, they've done it. Uh, it is really hard to admit that. Um, and and just the, the collective guilt, the personal guilt that you have to overcome is 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 monumental. I mean, it, it's it's intense. Well, what, I don't have to explain. Well, you know, of course, part of what uh, I've heard from members of AHA, and I, and I owe a lot to them because I was I was arrested a few times. I was never mm-hmm. in it for the long haul, but I, I you know I uh, I did go out a few times. I was hauled off to jail a few times, and and uh, it ba- effectively ended my corporate career with a large uh, company, I'll, which one main nameless. But um, I learned, you know, what, what was shocking is that first of all, every one of us knows someone who has killed one of their children. Yeah. And not only that, but what was really striking and startling when I first considered that, that Christians make up a large number of those people and that um, um, babies are aborted during Sunday worship services uh-huh. with, with the plan B. You know, they fornicate or they do something on Friday night and they go out and purchase the plan B on Saturday, and while they're singing the doxology on Sunday, um, their their body has been chemically altered in such a way that it's rejecting the baby from being implanted in the womb, and uh, they're effectively, you know, aborting a child while they're sitting in church. That's, that's a pretty, I mean, that's, a, that's you know, and of course, my question, and the question everybody wants to know, because I recently have interviewed a lot of, we've interviewed abolitionists and people are on the front lines now, and frankly, you know, what they're doing is different than what Rescue did. It, it's, it's, not, it's not less shocking. Uh, in fact, people seem to react today, you know, to the images, you know, uh, in a in a pretty, they're pretty, they're pretty startled by it, you know. But compared to fifty thousand people being arrested and thrown in jail, it doesn't seem to be quite on par, quite you know, on the level newsworthy of what of what rescue was doing. But what they've really started coming to the conclusion is that you know the abortion mill is not the front line; that's the final line. The front line is in the schools, the front are in the church, are in the you know Christian congregations where. And so my question is: Is and you're one of you're you're noteworthy, I think, in the fact that I know there were clergymen that were uh, involved in rescue, but proportionately, the number of of of, of elders and and pastors compared to your garden variety Christian was rather low. Would you say? Well, um. I don't know. I've, I've honestly never thought of it that way. Um, I always was very grateful when there were pastors involved, and I thought we had a had far more pastors involved than I thought would be involved. It's like I can't tell you if that was a significant number. Okay. Um, I, it's it's um, it probably at our high point we actually did. Uh, I mean, there there is a point in Atlanta uh, in which we probably we had contacted and had most of the mega church pastors um, saying, "Hey, we're just waiting for Charles Stanley to see what he's going to do. If he says go, we go. But if he says don't, and we go, I don't know what they thought was going to happen to him. Well, if, I didn't think they were that tenuous with their congregation. But anyway, I mean, it's not my sacrifice. It'd be their sacrifice. So I don't want to condemn a man for what he's not willing to do. But basically, um, we had most of the most of the pastors of Atlanta were behind us, and many of them had joined us. Um, when, when Charles Stanley, for whatever reason, uh, came out and, and said no, uh, that, that effectively uh, put the damper... That that kept Atlanta from 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 spilling over the top. 
just to give you an idea of, of how uh, culturally Christian Atlanta was at the time, I remember sitting behind uh, the head DA, who was an old user, probably as old as I am now, but he seemed pretty ancient. And uh, he was the the guy who was actually prosecuting our case was a young 34-ish uh, Jewish guy, tall, curly hair, good-looking, very Jewish-looking, you know, whatever that stereotype is. Um, and um, there was a break in the trial, and the DA actually said to him, he said, you know, you could have a really good career here in Atlanta. And the guy just, you know, laughed modestly, and the DA said, no, seriously, but you've got to get rid of this Jewish thing. He says, you need to become a good Baptist, join a Baptist church. And he says, I swear, your career is going to take right off. <laughs> I was sitting behind him about to fell out of my chair. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, holy crow, how do you say stuff like that? <clears throat> um, but anyway, uh, Atlanta was, was in that sense culturally very Christian. Um, or, or it's very easy to identify with, with the church and with Christ in that sense. Um, but in, in, uh, and it could very easily have had a situation there where, I mean, what I envisioned, and, and I really don't think it's going to change. Uh, and it was actually George Grant that, that in one of his books or maybe in a conversation with the mountain number which said, you know, um, uh, there was a time in New York where all the citizens just came down and they gathered around in a protest in an abortion clinic and each one of them took a brick home and there was nothing left of the place. I have a distinct memory of that. I've never gone back and checked the footnote. Maybe somebody can ask George. Um, but, but the idea of whether it happened or not, I've always felt like uh, when you look surrounding every abortion clinic within a, a, a 30, 40 minute drive, are going to be twenty, thirty thousand people who proclaim the name of Christ and loudly every Sunday morning. Um, and uh, I'm not talking about a protest. I'm not talking about doing anything horrendous. I'm just saying uh, that number of people gathering in one place. I don't think would have to touch a brick of a building. No, um, no I agree. Most would, people, most people wouldn't even, you know, determined uh, uh, to have an abortion would not would not do it in the face of a crowd like, like that. But, you know, we, we tried to organize a lot of stuff. Uh, Matt organized a 12,000-person uh, uh, rally in, in, uh, in uh, Milwaukee. Uh, they had that Arms Across America sort of, them, you know, where they had the life chains everywhere. Um, but even with, with that, only a tiny fraction of anybody came out. Um, I, I don't remember what your original question was, but, but um, I remember one of Randy's messages always was uh, in the song Endeavor, the uh, leaders led in Israel, the people followed, praise the Lord. Um, and we always tried to keep pastors in charge of everything. Probably one of the biggest mistakes we made in Atlanta, just tactically, this has nothing to do with, well, just tactically, was... Uh, we, we really wanted to go with the Christian law firms, and so we let uh, a local, very well-known law firm, not firm, but like Christian civil rights type group, I won't mention their name, uh, represented us there. And there was a, a very non-Christian attorney who just could not, he, he had, was very successful with police cases, and he just couldn't wait to take the police department apart. And... Uh, we basically fired him and put this Christian legal team in charge, and they so badly bungled their, I mean, they badly bungled the opportunity they had. Nobody really got lots of time or anything like that, but just uh, just tactically, there's a, there's a guy sitting there ready to take, take the police department and the entire city down, and uh, we handed over to uh, the people who literally had no idea legally what they had in their hands. Mm. And it was just a, it was a disaster. What, uh, uh, what, what would you say um, finally ended Operation Rescue? I mean, obviously, people who've studied it and who've cared to research the, the movement and who have looked into abortion um, 
and rescue today are aware of the FACE Act. So, I mean, we don't, I don't know if we need to go into that, but was that what ended uh, rescue or was there other things, other uh, issues internally or in culture well, that, that brought what the, FACE, what the FACE Act did? Let me com- compare Operation Rescue to an evangelistic crusade. The old traditional tent meeting. You get a bunch of people together. You explain to them the crisis they face. You give them one thing they can do to resolve that crisis. And then you ask them to come forward and do it. And that's pretty much what Operation Rescue was. I'm, I'm not making a theological statement. I'm just making, if you want to picture what these meetings were like. Uh, Randy was absolutely brilliant at being able to 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 crystallize everything and just make the one thing you needed to do make total sense. And uh, the one thing you need to do is go down to the, you know, if, if you were about to be killed, would you want somebody uh, writing a letter? Would you want somebody holding a sign? Or would you want somebody keeping the killer away from you? And that's a no-brainer. And so uh, we would get people just flocking down to the abortion clinics. It all made sense. And plus you had the sense of a movement. They're doing this everywhere in the country. Uh, we're saving lives. Even when it didn't seem like much was going on, you could always say, you know what? Uh, half the babies slated to be murdered today didn't get murdered. You know, so, so there was always an achievable goal. And, and uh, uh, just about anybody could do it. As you recall, um, you didn't, I mean, you didn't have to lose your job. You could have quit earlier. You could have spaced it out more, done it once a year instead of whatever. In other words, for, for, for a middle-class Christian, it was doable. Uh, and it was pretty stinking heroic. And I think a lot of Christians really liked the, the uh, I don't want to say the excitement of it, because that, that, that's a shallow. They really liked doing something they could see made a difference. And it, it was sacrificial, and, and you had jail time, just like Paul. Um, then after it went on for a while, uh, it kind of well, we aren't ending, we aren't ending abortion around the country, and and they're digging in, and and um, the uh, church isn't jumping on board, and so what what Matt and I envisioned was a concept of being a missionary. In other words, a missionary doesn't just have an evangelistic service; they set their house in order, and they go to the field, and they uh, uh, spend their life in India, China, inner city wherever it is they're going, Appalachia. And uh, <clears throat> so this, this, this wasn't a call for somebody who has a job to be able to do things on the weekend or once a year for their vacation or something like that. This is, this is what you're going to be doing. And um, it was set up to, to run that way. But, but the bottom line was um, you, we, we understood we would be spending more time in jail because we'd be treated as recidivists. Those are people who won't stop breaking the law, and so they get more. It, it, it approaches more and more of a maximum sentence. Um, right in the middle of all of that, uh, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act made it so that um, really you're looking at five to ten years and five to ten thousand dollars. I don't remember the details of it. I just remember big numbers. And what that meant is now. Uh, our rhetoric was always if a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if you uh, die, you will bear much fruit. And, uh, and I, I know I just call those holy words of Scripture, and they're pretty heavy when you stop and think about them, rhetoric. And apparently we found out that for us it was rhetoric. We, we didn't mean to die at all, and we didn't. Each one of us found a reason not to, um, whatever it might have been. And uh, we all quietly, on our own, one way or the other, some you'd be able to point your finger at and say, ah, a compromiser. Most weren't compromisers. They just weren't prepared to do the Nelson Mandela thing and spend the next 20 years in jail. By the way, I'm not saying Nelson Mandela was right. I'm saying it's it's a biblical principle that um, uh, if you believe in you know something that you think is right and you stick to it, you tend to have people who are willing. I hate to sound like a Pentecostal. I'm talking about a faith principle, but I really think that's the way God structured His world. Uh, he structured people, 
And that's that's what leaders have. They, The real thing that any leader has is faith that if you do this thing, it'll succeed. It's right. It doesn't matter who the leader is or whether it's a right or wrong thing. It's like... It's like anything else in the world that God made. If, if an unbeliever drives a nail the right way, it'll go into the wood. If he drives it the wrong way, it'll bend and it'll hit his thumb. Um, and uh, it just seems that we didn't, I know I wasn't, I wasn't up to that call. Um, like I was sort of like, well, I'll do it if you'll do it. Um, but all of us found a way to be tactical and, and to avoid that. And sometimes I think the only thing that's really missing is that, that sort of Joan Andrews thing. And that is, uh, the willingness just to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to identify with the children and, uh, I may be identifying behind bars, but when I get out from behind bars, I'll go back to identifying by being at the clinic and, uh, they put me back behind bars. That's where I'll be. And that's where I'll spend the rest of my life. Um, you know, looking back uh, at my experience, I can still, I don't remember the, I don't remember, I've been in front of judges a number of times in my life, but there's only one judge whose name I remember, and that was the judge who um, uh, who was on the bench when I was, when I was brought before the bench for um, rescuing, and his name was Judge Campbell. And um, I've regretted a lot of things in my life. And I've regretted a lot of things that I've done since that day, but there's nothing that I regret, not because I thought it was sin, but because it was a it was, and not because if I had made another decision that the world would have turned out differently. But when I accepted a, a, a basically his leniency in exchange for my agreement not to go back out and do it, uh, that was my that was a, that was a moral failure. And uh, I, of course, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, um, a real mature Christian. I mean, I'd been a Christian for a few years, and uh, I was reformed, but I, I had not really thought about it. You know, I kind of went out there, kind of like it was a, let's go do this. I said, all right. I was always a risk taker. You know, let's go do it. But I did not really count the cost, and and you know, because I had a wife and two small children, and one income, and. Uh, I accepted I accepted his, his leniency in exchange for an agreement not to go back out and do it again. And that and I look back at that that was thirty five years ago. Still one of the greatest disappointments in my life. And and you know, um, what what do you think, uh, uh, Joseph? Would rescue work today? Why or why not? Uh, what we did back then wouldn't unless the numbers were so massive. By that, I mean 20, 30,000, 10,000 would probably work. Um, and then it wouldn't, arrest wouldn't be an issue. Um, but I, I think what always works is a person who decides, let me not answer that question for just a second. You, you start talking about the, you know, the front lines are here, they're there, and then you name some front lines. Um, one of the convictions I've had from almost the very beginning, when I first realized that, that if people looked at me and said, said, you're just trying to put me down, you're just trying to guilt trip, you're trying to make me feel guilty. Um, and, uh, and the response, which I've always had to that, which I think is the right response is, is, Where's the front line? Well, the question is, where are you? If you're there, that's a front line. I mean, that's what the kingdom of God, where's the front line of the kingdom of God? Wherever you are, where are the gates of hell? Well, where are you? You are standing at the gates of hell, and they're not going to prevail against you. I mean, that's just what Jesus said. Um, wherever his people are, we are the front line of the assault on the gates of hell. And so um, this is, across the board through culturally uh, on almost any cultural issue and none of us are, are are dealing with all cultural issues at once but whatever cultural issue you are facing uh, that's that's the front line and so when you think about the murder of children in the womb who do you know where are you during the day uh, what are you doing this weekend wherever you are whatever you're doing 
that is the front line of the abortion war. Um, and so what are you doing there uh, to to be intolerant of the murder of children? That's, that's one of the reasons why. I mean, I had no idea that AHA existed, I think, until you or somebody told me about it. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I've, I've heard positive things and negative things, but, but the more I find out about them, um, the more I feel like, so what's the problem with what they do? And that's, that's how they do their frontline thing. And for the people who go down to the abortion clinics of sidewalk council, that's how they do their frontline thing. And for the person who just makes it a point to, to tell the people they know, that's how they do their frontline thing. In other words, I can't tell you where, where you are or, or, or what you are in life. I can just say wherever you are, take the next step. Be a little bolder. Well, do what you got to do. Well, what, we'd, what, um, what I think we generally have kind of come to this conclusion is that, well, yeah, everybody's pro-life, and they prove it by voting for a Republican every four years. If that's what it means to be pro-life, then that's then being pro-life is not enough. The question is, you know, if 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 by being pro-life you mean I'm against abortion, you know, I have this moral abhorrence to the idea of children being murdered in their mother's womb. The question is always, well, what are you willing to do about it? Right, exactly. And and that and and I I want to give it. I mean. We're not taking this in any particular order. Like I said, all, like all my podcasts is pretty organic. I've been reading your book, and um, um, it's a, it's a, it's something of a sleeper. If people don't know what a sleeper is, if, if a sleeper is a imagine a, a hot rod, you know, a, um, uh, a Mustang five point pulling up to a a stoplight next to a soccer mom mobile. And it's gunning its engine and revving, and, and the driver, the Mustang, is challenging, is mocking the 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 man in glasses with the kids in the back, in the car seats, driving the soccer mom mobile, and um, and then when the light turns green, the soccer mom mobile just dusts that Mustang. I mean, just blows it, and that's what we call a sleeper. Uh, in other words, it's something you you didn't have any idea what was under the hood. When you just just looking at it, you know, uh, and I would yeah. I would say that your book is something of a sleeper. Your book is called Shattering the Darkness, <clears throat> and um, because I'm an abolitionist, and because I knew of your association with Operation Rescue and Missionaries to the Preborn, I thought would well, be an interesting book about about uh, the tactics and the, the the history of Operation Rescue. What I found out is that it's a lot more about the cross of Jesus Christ and what that and and what that means to me practically speaking and um so it's i call it a sleeper because you you, you pick the book up thinking it's going to be about one thing and then it and then the holy spirit uses it to dismantle your life and um uh, and uh so i i want to give you a chance i want to give you a chance to to talk a little bit about that i have a lot of other questions i mean seriously this was uh, you have a lot of things to say i, I wanted to ask you um, uh, um, what did you, are you the same man you were back in those days? What did it cost you personally and what did it do for you? Maybe that's what's, maybe that's what's in the book. Now the book was written from Fulton County jail. I don't know if it was written completely from Fulton County jail, but a good part of it was at least. Could you answer those questions briefly? You know, when, when a person is all in and they give all they can give, maybe, or maybe you would, you would, uh, deny the fact that you gave all you could give but what what did operation rescue cost you are you the same man you were then and what did it do for you can you answer those briefly can you speak to those maybe that's yeah i've um not comfortably if you saw the um probably more than anything else uh i grew up with a sincere belief and i held it my entire life through a number of changes in my theology. Um, and the belief was that uh, uh, deep down inside every Christian was the belief that they wanted to give their life for Christ as he had given his life for us. And it just never occurred to me that that really is an alien thought for most Christians. 
and uh, I don't mean to judge him or anything like that. It just, if you want to know the feeling, uh, and, it, and it wasn't an experience, like, like I had this experience. It's not that. It's just, it's just in reflecting on the 10 years of involvement. Um, if, if you've seen the movie Braveheart and you remember where he's finally defeated in the battle, and I really should know my Scottish history better, but I'm not thinking of Scottish history right now. I'm just thinking of the, of the scene in the movie. And he's knocked off his horse and he's down and uh, <clears throat> his enemy uh, takes his helmet off and it turns out that it's uh, uh, Robert uh, the Bruce. Robert the Bruce. Now, historically, actually, I don't think that's true. That that didn't happen historically. But in the movie, it, it's an extremely gripping moment in in which uh, William Wallace realizes he has been utterly betrayed and played. And um, and I guess it's it's not it's not so much the betrayal. It's just that sense of, gosh, you guys, you, you really don't believe this. Does anybody really believe this? And I'm not saying nobody believes it. I'm not saying you don't believe it. I'm just saying, just just as a general rule, we had the opportunity, literally, to bring to to to, to bring reformation and transformation, because the message of Operation was not of Operation Rescue was not uh, join us in this activism, and and we will do a good deed like save a baby's life. The message of Operation Rescue was we need to repent. And we need to uh, simply do the things that a Christian would do if a baby's about to be murdered. This isn't, this isn't brain surgery. And then we need to realize in our repentance, what kind of people are we that we got into this situation in the first place and begin to change our lives and, and to see Reformation and Revival come to the whole country? Um, that was the idea, because the only way we could win if, if it's called winning, is for everybody to realize this is evil, and and we are for for the whole nation to ask that question: How on earth could we, as as decent people, have been like this? And then through that, the answer to that question, they begin to realize their need of the transformation uh, power of the Holy Spirit applying the blood of Christ to every aspect of their cultural life and their mortal soul, um, and so. We just saw it as a natural uh, thing that could could happen, and just the fact that Christians couldn't see it—that that it was alien, that it was too threatening—that what they saw uh, that was that was like, in other words, it wasn't an experience I had. It's just a general reflection on you know to, today if if I or a Christian does anything, I feel kind of good about it. Because my expectation is so low, and I, I, I think that's probably the biggest change in my life um, is, is, is just what well, what was in the hands of the church at that time um, that that we just didn't know, we just didn't do anything with it, and it, it, it just the emotion of it is very much like like that scene in Braveheart where he realizes they don't want to fight the British, they don't want to beat the British. I think to take a comparable thing today, uh, the Republican Party are the Washington Capitals. No, is that the right? No, that's a hockey team. What is it? The, whatever the whatever the team is that that uh, plays uh, the uh, uh, Harlem Globetrotters, and they're out there in order to lose. I just feel like the Republicans are that. The Church is that. Uh, the teaching of Christ that you lay down your life has been transformed into that it's somehow sinful uh, to win. And I don't mean win in the sense of a baseball game. I mean win in the sense of uh, realize the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit transforming a culture. That that can't happen to us. Uh, our job is just to go out there and be thought fools of and to lose. And if anybody actually takes a stand, well, they're being uppity. And, uh, you know, the, the black community had that problem during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, that, that same problem, I mean... It's funny, all the people who supported Dr. Martin Luther King, who who stayed home, but after he won, all of a sudden, hey, you know, that's where we were. We were right before that guy. They weren't. And, um, you know, just, that's that's probably, uh, I realize I'm just sort of babbling now. But, uh, well, 
I think of the uh, I think of the uh, childhood fairy tale or the uh, I probably saw it on Captain Kangaroo. I'm showing my age there. Was the the the, uh, the the mother hen with the little chicks, and she said, "Who will help me? You know, plant the wheat." And said the pig said, "I won't," and the cow said, "I won't," and the goat said, "I won't, I won't, I won't." But you know, and then into the whole process of of uh, planting the grain and harvesting the grain and weeding the grain and carrying the grain to the mill and getting it ground and bringing it back and baking the bread. But then when it comes time to eat the bread, they, they are all in line. You know, they're all, they all want to eat the bread, but none of them. They're all right there. You know, and, and you made. Um, so in answer to your original question, no, Operation Rescue was never particularly heroic. It just seemed like the reasonable thing to do. And I was, I'm very grateful for Randy Terry, who, um, who had that gift of God to be able to galvanize people. And he was somebody you could rally around. Um, yeah, yeah. Unless people want to, unless people want to, um, to uh, skewer the whole movement over whatever moral failures or whatever sort of doctrinal d- departure occurred late in life, we need to remember David. Yeah. Um, and Solomon. Uh, mm-hmm. They, a lot. Everybody starts well. Everybody starts yeah. off well. The, the the challenge is to end well. Or and, Gideon. Yeah. Or or uh, Jephthah. Or <laughs> I go down the list of most of those guys. And, um, but I I'm very grateful that God gave me that experience. They, there are other people like like Pastor Matuella who 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 never took a vacation as near as I can tell. And uh, has always, uh, I, I mean, he's, if there's anybody who's Francis Marion, it's him, uh, the Swamp Fox. He's, he's just, tactically, he's brilliant. And, uh, and they, there's other people, each in their own way. Um, they, they, they're, anyway, um, they're just really good, good people. And then there's some that have fallen by the wayside, I mean, I fell out of the picture. I don't think I fell, but I mean, I, I went and did other things because, well, um, and then there's some that, that anyway. Well, nobody, as, nobody, crit- as you said, nobody cri- criticizes an 18 year old who stormed the beach at Normandy for not putting in 30 years and retiring. I mean, yeah. you you know, you do what you can do, and and nobody we're not trying. Nobody's trying to bind anybody else's yeah. conscience and tell people exactly. what you ought to have done. Um, the, uh, do you generally subscribe to this notion that that you know everybody can't be at the tip of the spear at the same time, but the people that cannot be at the tip of the spear, that for whatever reason cannot, uh, they, they need to at the very least need to be doing something to support them. I mean, uh, I, I, I see, I, and again, I, listen, I'm I'm reading your book, I'm still working through it, and I'm jumping around, and some, and I'm going back and forth in it, and I'm underlining it, and highlighting it, and, and I'm, and I'm Facebooking it, and people are saying, man, you've really been on this, like this, you've been on this burn, you're like, you're like, on this, you can't get off of the, uh, the abortion thing, and I'm saying, hey, it's a matter of priority. I mean, when well, if you if you pass your neighbor's house on fire, it's you, you know, there's not any question of what you need to do, you know. That's the need of the moment, and uh, and and so, you know, if you can, if there's a bigger if there's a bigger disaster going on, then tell me what it is, you know. Um, but the, the so, and I don't have any illusions about the fact that that. that me or you or a handful of people it's it's it, you know unless the lord builds the house we labor in vain and and my hope was that if enough there, if there was enough obedience uh at one time that perhaps god might uh might pour out his holy spirit and and and, and could really accomplish some major some major change major revival could be but you know, I, I I ask you know what is, what does it mean that we haven't ended abortion after forty four years? It probably means that God will destroy America before we destroy abortion. Well, I've come to the conclusion, and this gets off the abortion question, 
that destroying America is a lot harder than a lot of people think it is. I think Obama spent eight years thinking it would be easy. And he can't figure out why with, why he wasn't any more successful than he was. Uh, it's just very hard to destroy. And it's really easy to be critical of America. But so many good things have been going for it for so long that um, there's a lot here to destroy. And also, I'm all, I always remember the closing words of, the, of, um, of uh, Jonah, where God says, there's, what is it? I don't know how many thousands of people who don't know their right hand from their left, and much cattle. No, it's God, God cares about all these people. He likes them. I, I, I don't know why, I don't know what, but um, all the people that we despise who don't vote and stuff like that, you know, aren't active, God says they don't know the right hand from their left. Um, and he's not in a hurry, apparently he's not in a hurry to destroy us. Um, and what I would like for us to do is see these things like Trump's victory, not as Trump the savior, but as... Is God is holding, you know, just the guy is holding the window open a little bit longer. What are we going to do with that open window? Uh, point out all the ways he's a failure or find the things we can do and move ahead. Um, he's not going to be able to hold the window forever. And I, he doesn't even see himself as holding the window. My point is God has said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to turn the Supreme Court over to uh, people who will dismantle the Bill of Rights within the next three years. You know, what are you going to do with it? You still got a bill of rights kind of working for you. You're going to do something with it. Anyway, that that's the way I look at it. And then the other thing is, just as somebody who disappeared for 25 years and resurfaced, I am so encouraged by all the stuff I see going on at so many different levels. Um, yeah, you're right. It's it's moving more and more towards an abortifacient as opposed to uh, abortion clinic approach to things, and, and that is, I hope that's not the reason for the drop in the, uh, the uh, abortion rate, but um, I also think just that, that um, there's unintended consequences of liberalism that work against them, and, uh, you know, kids deciding to have children instead of killing their kids instead of taking the abortifacients. And, and now there's a problem in the schools. They don't know what to do with all these unwed mothers. And on the one hand, you want to say, this is a crisis. On the other hand, you want to say, well, got a lot of babies that ought to be dead. Or they would have been dead. I don't want to say ought to be. So, you know, there's, there's, there's things like AHA, a, AHA out there. There are, and then there are people who are offended by AHA. You know, you know what that means? There's somebody so committed to what they're trying to do that they're noticing AHA. Okay, so they don't like what they're doing, uh, but they're noticing it, which means they're involved, they're engaged somehow. Um, they are, uh, you know, just across the spectrum. There's so many things still going on, and I know that in my cynical moments, I kind of felt like, is anything happening? And, um, and I think one of the things that's happening is... Uh, all the old leadership is dying out and clearing out, and there's a lot of people who, like we were 30 years ago, uh, saying, man, this is a wasteland. Somebody's got to do something. Okay, I'll do something. And they're stepping up to the plate. And I, I like to see them step up to the plate. I, I mean, I hate to say this, but I, it's encouraging to me when I hear pro-lifers get all upset over the fact that you're doing it the wrong way. No, you're doing it the wrong way. No, you're doing it the wrong way. That's encouraging to me because there's pro-lifers who have vision and they're arguing and they think they can do something. I mean, for about 10 years in there, there was nobody who thought they could do much of anything. Um, and so now people are saying, we got some answers, we're gonna go. And it's that commitment that I see the Holy Spirit is working in people's hearts. And um, uh, so I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm encouraged for the conflict. I'm encouraged for the vision. Those things are very encouraging to me. How would anybody do this work if they were not optimillennial? If they did not have, somehow or the other, they didn't believe that, that in, in. Well, that, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, just, I, I can't figure out how somebody, but I know I run into them and they're very sincere. 
Um, and and they just get all distressed at the thought that they're getting old and Jesus hadn't come back yet. And if, has he forgotten about him? And I'm thinking, that's really a problem for you? But it is. There are other people who, I, I, I agree with you, I, I don't know how people do anything if they don't think that God, by his Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Word and the application of his law, is going to change the world. Yeah, this I'm is, not sure why yeah. you would try to do something. Yeah, this is just an aside, but I was talking with uh, Gabriel uh, Coangelo, who's a pastor out here at uh, Sovereign Grace Church in um, Riverside, California today. And we were talking about in our last War Room podcast that, you know, of, of the various different tenets of uh, Christian Reconstruction, being be it covenant theology or, or uh, Calvinism, our theonomy, that, that if your children, if you're sending your children to homeschool, they've been homeschooled, and you're sending them off to state university now because they got to get accreditation to go into whatever their chosen career is, the, you know, they can go into a university as a Calvinist, and they will they can lose their faith. They can go into yeah. the university as a theonomist, and they can lose their faith. But if they go into the university as a presuppositionalist, they will not lose their faith because all the other ideas and belief systems the competing worldview that that will be presented to them is absurd and it's already been neutralized in their mind it's they can't they can't uh-huh. embrace it now in the same way i would say that in terms of justice and mercy if a person really wants to is a, if a person is determined to 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 work for justice and mercy whether it be in the prison system which is as we've seen is it's 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 horrendous it's slave labor it's you know it's uh, if it's public education and its ultimate demise, is it whether it is a taxation and the de- the the de- demolishing of the Federal Reserve, or whether it's a state-sanctioned child sacrifice, it really helps to believe that Jesus wins, and that yes. and that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Sorry. Joseph, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, in closing, the last closing few minutes here, why don't you tell us a little bit about your the book that you wrote and uh, what and why people, why you would recommend, what, what they might encounter, what they might discover uh, in, in reading it, what it has for them, and how they can get it? If you're someone who wants to find out or explore or think through what it means to lay down your life. Uh, that really is what the book is about. Uh, Let's the grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. Um, why would you read it? Well, it, it, it pretty much takes what we were... Operation Rescue uh, was not what most people on the outside thought it was. What it actually was was a bunch of Christians saying, how can we live for Christ when they're murdering our neighbor? And the what we came up with was a Christian lays down his life so that people can be protected, clothed, fed, visited, comforted, uh, ministered to if they're sick. This is what a Christian does. Uh, if you have a, give your clothes, give your tunic, and, that's just how a Christian does. So how do you do it when, when they're being uh, uh, murdered? Well, we had the opportunity, which you really don't have today, to be able to go block the door. And really, there's a little bit of time in court, not much more than that for, for most people who do it. Um, but, but the idea being, whatever you're engaged in as a Christian, um, are you willing to do in that area what Jesus Christ did for you. And that's that's really what the book is. And if there is one line that, to my mind right now, of course it's been a few years since I read it, much less wrote it, it's, it's where I ask the question, uh, why are you telling me all the things you can't do and why you can't get involved in rescue or something like that when it comes to, to a pro-life works? My question is, what are you doing? I mean, don't tell me what you're not doing. Tell me what you are doing. That's what matters. Um, are are you pleased with the level of what you're doing? Or do you feel like you need to uh, uh, get more serious about how to serve God in the issues that you're facing right now? It could be in education. It could be um, uh, 
Yeah, you know, just go down the list of all the things you can go down. Um, everything that a Christian does to engage the world is is a way. Well, one of the reasons I be, I run a coffee shop is because it puts me in direct touch with all the people who, if we were rescuing today, would be the clinic defenders on the other side of the, uh, you know, trying to keep us away from the abortion clinic. They're the ones that I want to reach. Uh, my heart goes out to them. And uh, so I spend just an awful lot of time talking with them at many, many different levels, um, just trying to reach them for Christ. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think the takeaway, as, I'm, as I was listening, you described the book, and I'm thinking of what I'm taking away from it. I'm thinking of Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life yep, which I the and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. So, whatever you're doing as a believer, whether it's running a business or whether it's uh, uh, seeking to uh, uh, come against evil in any of the various different ways that evil comes against uh, us, I mean, if you're not doing it as a crucified person, you're doing it wrong. I, I think you put your finger on it very well. Uh, I would take the classic, by grace you save through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And then the next verse is, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to walk in all the things he's prepared for us from the foundation of the world. And what the book does is it helps you go from using the things you're doing as an excuse not to be involved to saying, how can I see in the things I'm doing a way to get involved? Uh, very often, I used to hear this a lot back during the rescue days, and unfortunately, I've used the excuse myself. Well, you know, I'm busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing these. Are, you know, God's called me to take care of my kids. God's called me to take care of my wife. Um, I have a I have a father to bury, um, and those all the things that God gives you to do become excuses not to follow Him. Uh, what the book will help you to do is to find in all those excuses of what, what were excuses not to follow him become doors that open up for ways to follow him and all those things that you were doing. Um, because I think we get complacent, we get very comfortable with our level of, of giving, whatever that is. And what the book will help you to do is challenge that level and, and, and help you turn the very things you're using to keep Christ at arm's length from that part of your life into a doorway into obedience. So the the, t- the whole title of the book is uh, Shattering the Darkness and uh, what, The Crisis of the Cross? The Crisis of the Cross in the Church Today. The problem with being living sacrifices, folks, and we're, t- and we're called living sacrifices in Romans 12, is that a living sacrifice can still get off the altar. The challenge is to, is to stay dead, is to stay down. And, uh, and and really, I encourage you to get the book. Um, it, it's not a it's not a tomb. It's not this big giant theological treatise. I picked it up because a friend wrote it, and I thought it was going to deal with abortion. And what it dealt with is basic what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, I found out yeah. not that I didn't know this already, but you know, we talk about bumper sticker theology. We have a lot of bumper sticker discipleship, and when yeah. it, when it comes right down to it, and you really investigate, you know, the words of Christ. Discipleship looks a whole lot like, like dying. But anyway, listen, I, I look forward next time I can visit you there in North Carolina. And uh, everybody, we appreciate y'all listening in. And good evening uh, from Long Beach, California, and Black Mountain, North Carolina, from the War Room. Thank you for joining us in the War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by My Soul Among Lions. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. 
Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.